Let's open our Bibles together to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. I noticed this morning that there are still a handful of the um, scripture journals at the back for 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, if you're still interested. Just a few left. Um, we won't be replenishing those, so if you're interested, then make sure you get one after the service. 1st John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you, will, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. It was in 1988 that I first felt the pain of a spiritual father whose spiritual son was being led astray by a false teacher. My job as a loader at UPS had opened the door for many evangelistic conversations, and some of those were fruitful. And one in particular was a young man who grasped hold of Christ and the gospel with such great excitement. And as I was discipling him, he was growing in the Lord only then to learn not shortly after that he had gone to a church where some cultic kind of teachings were being propagated and he was led astray. And there was such great pain in my heart. Thankfully, years later, I learned that uh, the Lord had opened his eyes and he was back on track, and I was so excited about that. But it was the first time that I had felt that pain that perhaps you have felt. Felt pain for someone that you invested in spiritually, only to see them led astray by someone else or to walk away from the truth of Christ. And there is that aching in your heart, that longing that they will come back to know the truth of Christ and his word. 
It's the pain that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 11 where he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We know from the book of Acts that Paul had invested 18 months of his life in Corinth and had spread the gospel there and had discipled as many people as he could, as well as he could in 18 months' time before the Lord took him somewhere else. Only later then to realize that some were leading those believers astray, away from the purity of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the purity of loving Jesus and sincere devotion to the word of Christ. And this caused deep pain in the apostle's heart. And it is that kind of pain that's going on in John's heart as he is penning these words for us here in 1 John chapter 2. We noticed last week that there's this great contrast between the world system and what it teaches and spreads and the word of God, that which the Lord Jesus brings to us in the hope of the gospel. And as we continue then in verse 18, we see here a warning from a spiritual father to his spiritual children, as well as an assurance of how God protects us from false doctrine. Notice, first of all, the warning with me, please. First of all, notice, be aware of the danger of anti-Christian teachers who masquerade as part of the family. You'll notice here that the apostle is concerned about these children. This is the same word we noticed last week, uh, earlier in verse 13, referring to immature believers, new believers, those who had not yet really been firmly rooted in Christ and and had not yet displayed spiritual maturity. So they're young in the faith, they're vulnerable, okay? Young believers are vulnerable in their zeal to know the truth and to follow the Lord. They can sometimes look to places other than sound teaching for nourishment, and through that, the devil leads some of them astray. And so John is very concerned about these young believers. He wants them to be firmly rooted in Christ and never to be led astray. And so he says to them, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. This phrase, the last hour, refers to that time frame that we are actually still living in, that time frame from the ascension of the Lord Jesus 40 days after his resurrection and when he returns. And so the church has been in this period of the last hour for a long time. And this is a time period that is characterized positively by the spreading of the gospel to all the lands of the earth and all language groups and all ethnicities. And yet it's also a time in which the devil is working over time to deceive people, to keep them from understanding the truth of the gospel. And then when they understand and when they embrace, to then deceive them by leading them into false doctrine. 
If the devil cannot prevent a person from coming to faith in Jesus, he will work really hard then to prevent them from growing in the Lord Jesus by leading them astray. And so John introduces us to this term antichrist. The antichrist is coming. Antichrist is coming, he says in verse 18. This is referring to the ultimate false Christ who is yet to be revealed according to Scripture. This is the Antichrist of which Daniel prophesies, as well as the apostles. For example, in the letter to the Thessalonians, the apostle Paul warns the believers with these words. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord, that ultimate final day, of judgment, the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There is coming a day in the future when there will be a, an ungodly religious leader so filled with Satan that he will lift himself up as the Antichrist, probably a political and a religious leader, all mixed together in one. He will present himself to the world as Savior, and many will be deceived. That Antichrist is coming. Anti refers to that which is in place of or opposed to. So both are true of the Antichrist, uppercase A, that future son of destruction that Scripture refers to. He will set himself up as God in the place of God, and then he will oppose Christ and all who follow Christ. But both of these characteristics are also true of false prophets. They set themselves up in place of Christ, and their teachings are opposed to the teachings of Christ. And that's why John says that Antichrist is coming, but also many Antichrists have come. So there are many Antichrists. There are many who are opposed to Christ. There are many who have claimed to, in fact, even be Christ. Jesus predicted this in Mark 13, 6, when he warned his disciples, many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So there are these many deceivers John speaks of. Now skip down for a moment to verse 22. 22 and 23, where he, he describes these anti-Christian teachers a little bit more specifically. He says in verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? In other words, a teacher's doctrine of Jesus Christ is the ultimate litmus test of his authenticity. If a teacher is off on the doctrine of Christ, then he is an anti-Christian teacher. That's what John is saying. You have to get your doctrine of Jesus Christ straight, square. That has got to be accurate. 
or everything else will go astray. Jesus is both Lord and Savior. He is the Son of God who died in our place to save us from our sins. This is Christ. And he says in verse 22, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies Jesus, the one who denies that Jesus is this sin-atoning Messiah that God promised to send. This Antichrist denies the Father and the Son. The consequences are clear then in, in 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So if a religious teacher denies who Jesus Christ is biblically defined by Scripture, he cannot be a believer. Cannot be, John says. It's not like a uh, yellow flag above the head. No, this is a this is a red stop sign. No, can't be. That's God saying that. That's not me saying that. But then look at the second part of twenty three. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So one's relationship to Christ is what determines everything. One's doctrine of Christ determines everything. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So, Christ is to be always lifted up, always exalted, and we must believe what is right and true about him. But our world is filled with all kinds of false teachers. Some openly deny the Lord Jesus, but some also use Jesus' name to promote their own agenda. False teachers often present Jesus as a personal life coach who can improve your life. While, like the apostles, biblical teachers emphasize who Christ is as the Son of God and his saving, sin-atoning, death-conquering work for sinners like you and me. The scriptures teach that all antichrists that is, all teachers and so-called prophets who oppose biblical doctrine are ultimately deceived and being used by Satan to accomplish his destructive agenda. First Timothy 4 says it this way, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devouring themselves, excuse me, by devoting themselves, they'll be devoured later by, by Satan, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and, listen, teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So the devil is working in the realm of doctrine. 
Sometimes we look at what's going on in the world and we get more upset about what's going on in the world and what Satan's doing in the world. And it is my conviction based on scripture that we ought to be more upset by the deception that, that Satan is accomplishing in the church. Through the false doctrine, through the false gospels. Because through that he's leading many to an eternal hell. The late Paul Van Gorder, teacher for the Radio Bible class, wrote this. Satan operates primarily in the realm of religion. He knows that people are prone to be enticed and misled by that which is novel and different. He delights in deceiving with new ideas or by twisting the truth or by outright apostasy. That could have been written in our day. And yet it was written 50 years ago. So-called progressive Christianity. That all the old is bad. And so what we need is newfangled Christianity. It's, the devil does this in every generation. He just puts a different coat on every time, just a different costume each time. But it's the same old Lie. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, if the gospel is veiled, that is, if the gospel is kept hidden to unbelievers, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you know what Satan does not want unbelievers to see? He does not want them to see the beauty and majesty and glory of our amazing, awesome Savior. That's what he doesn't want them to see. He does not want them to see the joy of the Lord that is our strength when we focus on Christ and what Christ is accomplishing and will accomplish through his gospel. See, it's by refusing to place themselves under the authority of Scripture that false teachers invent their own message. Uh, in my Bible reading uh, this week, I was in Ezekiel, and there were some verses that just leaped out at me in chapter 13, uh, where God describes false prophets and condemns them. And, and Ezekiel writes this, Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord. In other words, they say, God said. God said this. When the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. I thought, my word, is that relevant today or what? So many people running around saying, I have a word from God. God said to me, and they expect God to fulfill their word. 
That's the opposite of what a faithful Bible teacher will do. False teachers expect God to fulfill their word, whereas faithful Bible teachers expect God to fulfill his own word. I don't have any words to offer you except the words of God. So this is a call to the church to be discerning, to wake up and realize how pervasive deception is. And that's why the Apostle Paul charged Timothy to stay faithful to God's word and to stay faithful to the preaching of God's word. In 2 Timothy 4, I charge you, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Not your own message. Not God came to me in a vision of the night, and this is what he said. Preach the word. Preach scripture. Stay faithful to the word. And always be ready, he says. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, when it's favorable and when it's not favorable. When people like your preaching and when people hate your preaching. Just keep preaching. That's what Paul said. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. People don't want it. The time will come, Paul says, when people will not want to listen to biblical preaching. They will not be attracted to biblical preaching that lifts up Christ. Instead, they will accumulate for themselves. They will, they will gather teachers around themselves who suit their own passions Tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And as a result, they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Myths. Now, as we've noted before, that these dangers do not come from outside of the church. They come from inside the church. It's really important to understand that. Jesus warned of it, and so did the apostles. For example, Paul, to the elders in Ephesus, as he was leaving them, he says, I know after I leave, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's what John is is talking about here. Antichrist is coming, but now many Antichrists have come. And they were among us, 
John says. They weren't out there in the world. They were among us in the professing church within the confines of professing Christianity. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, for they were not of us. So they were among us. But they went out from us because they were not of us. In other words, they were not of the same kind. These false teachers were not actually believers, not genuine, regenerate, born-again, saved believers in Christ. Because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They were among us, spreading their anti-Christian doctrine, but then they left. Why? Probably when they realized they couldn't get any further than they had gotten. And so they went out to find a different vulnerable flock. John is clear here that these anti-Christian teachers were once a visible part of the assembly of God's faithful people and then left. This is apostasy that John is describing. It's the warning that Peter gives in 2 Peter 2. False prophets also arose among the people, not from outside, among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves destruction. So God's condemnation and ultimate judgment of false teachers is sure. They are apostates, Peter says, and John says here. That is, they were once a visible part of the assembly, but now they have gone out. Perhaps they were once elders or deacons or Sunday school teachers or small group leaders, and now they have turned away from the faith. turned away from sound doctrine, from the scriptures, and its ultimate authority over everything that we believe. Peter goes on then to give us what ought to be a really a shocking warning. Describing these false teachers, he says, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It would have been better for those false teachers to have never even heard of Jesus. Their condemnation will be greater, Peter is saying, because of their knowledge. 
And that's the way it is with God. I mean, accountability is based on knowledge. So the more you know about the Lord, the more you know about Scripture, the more accountable you are. And so the condemnation of these false teachers will be great. So that's the warning from John. Be aware of the danger of anti-Christian teachers who masquerade as part of the family of God. But secondly, there's an assurance here for us. And it's an assurance of how God has provided what we need to be kept safe from false teaching. So notice, secondly, be assured of the discernment provided through the Holy Spirit as you abide in the word. Look at verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Now, that's a really important truth. This is referring to the Holy Spirit. That is, that the Holy Spirit has been given to every believer. We know this. Why? Because he says, and you all have knowledge. And remember, he's writing to Believers, He's writing to spiritual fathers, spiritual young men, spiritual children, people at different stages of growth, but they are believers. They are saved. You all have knowledge. In other words, the Holy Spirit has been given to every believer. There are some realms within professing Christianity who do not teach that, but they say, no, it's only the the really special people who have the Holy Spirit. Others don't get him. And so you got to figure out if you're a have or a have not. But the Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture says, at the moment of saving faith, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the believer in Jesus Christ. You have the anointed one. You've been anointed. You, you, have, you have received the Holy Spirit. And notice what it says. You all have knowledge. It doesn't say you have all knowledge. There's a difference. You all, as believers, have knowledge. The knowledge of the gospel given to you by the word of God through the Holy Spirit. But you don't have all knowledge. In other words, we still have a lot of growing to do, Right? We still have a lot of studying of the scriptures to do. We need others to help us to understand the word of God and to apply it to our lives. But John's point here is that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is to give him or her discernment as to the teachings of men. That's the context here. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. In other words, the Holy Spirit will guard your mind and heart from false teaching. He does this through the teaching of the Word to us. Jesus says this in John 14. He says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and the My Father will love him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. 
and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Then he goes on to say, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit will be our teacher, Jesus says, and how will he teach? By bringing remembrance of what has already been taught in Scripture. That's how he teaches. The Holy Spirit doesn't teach by giving you some new special revelation that nobody else has. The Holy Spirit teaches you by bringing to your remembrance what Scripture says so that you may grow in Christ. We see this marriage of the Holy Spirit to Scripture in uh, 1 Corinthians 2. Turn there with me for a moment, because this is really so, so significant. Because if, if you understand this passage of Scripture and you stick with the Word of God as being the means through which the Spirit teaches us and leads us, you will be amazed at all the weird stuff that you will get protected from. But as long as you think, well, this thing with Jesus this is just a personal thing that he and I have, and the Spirit of God you know, lives within me, and, and he's just going to lead me according to my way, my special little relationship, my special little revelation. Instead of understanding something that gives us so much security and stability, which is that the Spirit speaks to us through the book that he wrote. That's how he speaks to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at this amazing passage of Scripture. Verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? That's a good question, isn't it? Who knows my thoughts except the spirit of Paul that lives within this body of Paul? And the same is true of you. Who knows your thoughts, Larry, except you? I don't know Larry's thoughts. Larry knows Larry's thoughts. Well, the same is the case, then, for the Spirit of God. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So who knows the thoughts of God? The Spirit of God. Now, this is where it gets into mind-blowing applications. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So... We have, as believers, we have the Spirit who is from God so that we might understand the things that God gave to us. Well, how did he give these things to us? Verse 13, and we impart this in words. Words. The only way you know what I'm thinking is if I tell you, if I reveal my thoughts through my words. The only way I know what Larry's thinking is when he opens his mouth and he lets it out, and I know what he's thinking. How did God let us know his thinking? In words. Not taught by human wisdom. Not stuff I'm going to make up. But taught by the Spirit. 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. See, this is the Holy Spirit's ministry to you and to me, to give us discernment about the teachings of men, to to see if they line up with Scripture. The natural person, that is the unsaved person, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And sometimes we get so upset when unbelievers don't accept the truth of the Bible. Well, how are they going to accept it if they don't have the Spirit of God, the author of the Bible, living within them? Instead of getting upset and angry at them, we have to be praying our hearts out for them that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes to see the truth and the beauty and the glory of Jesus and come to him. The natural man's not able to understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. In other words, the teachings of God can only be discerned by those who have the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture, because God revealed his mind in words. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Did you understand? Do you understand that this Bible that I hold in my hand and the Bible that you hold in your hands is the mind of God in written form? This is the thoughts of God imparted by the Spirit of God in words. Words. This is really important. It's so basic, but it's so essential, right? Because we live in a day and age in which we are trained, relentlessly trained to follow not words of God, but personal feelings about what God might be saying to me or how he might be leading me based upon my feelings. But God says he's revealed his mind to us in words, the words of Scripture. This is such a comforting assurance. John stresses to us that we can be protected from the false gospels, the false teaching that is in the church. It's in professing Christianity that's where the worst doctrine comes from. We can be protected because why? You have the anointed one. You all have knowledge. And he assures them then in verse 22, excuse me, 21, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. So I'm writing this to you as an assurance to you that because you know the Lord, because you know Jesus, because you believe the gospel, because you are listening to his word, you have the truth, the truth of Scripture. Well, then you bump down a little bit. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. 
And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Oh, what a promise that is. What a promise from God that those who embrace the Son also embrace the Father. The Spirit of God lives within, and we know the truth. And the ultimate fulfillment of that truth is the promise of eternal life. I write these things to you, 26, about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you've received from him, that's back to verse 20, abides in you. The Spirit of God abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. Doesn't mean we don't need teachers, because that'll come clear in other parts of the book. But what he is saying is, we don't ultimately rely on the teachings of men. We ultimately rely, rely on the word of God, which the Holy Spirit affirms and confirms in our mind and in our heart. It is the Spirit of God, according to Romans 8, that bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And he does that through his word. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, look at those last three words, abide in him. In who? Christ. So the question then is, John, how? How do I abide in him? How do I abide in Christ? Well, there is only one sure way to abide in Christ, and that is to abide in the word of Christ. And I'm not making that up. I'm just echoing what Jesus says in John 15 when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. He still hasn't answered the question, though. What does it mean to abide in him? He goes on. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. He goes on to say, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my Love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. How do we abide in him? By abiding in his word. Why? Because God revealed his thoughts by the Spirit in words. And this is the only reliable way that we can know the truth. Not by our feelings, not by our intellect, not by our human reasonings, not by earthly wisdom, but only by the words 
of Christ, which are recorded in Scripture. And so then when we come to chapter 4, and we see in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. We know how to do that. There are many false prophets, he says, that have gone out into the world. But this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So believers have the Holy Spirit of God living within us, and he lives to glorify Christ. That is his purpose. Jesus says that in the Gospel of John. He shall glorify me. And so when we hear the teachings of men which diminish Jesus and do not bring him glory, there's a reason we feel something is off. Something isn't quite right. That's because the Holy Spirit in us is bearing witness with our spirit because he wants Christ to be lifted up and glorified. So, brothers and sisters, we have to test the teachings of men by Scripture. But we don't do it alone. We do it with the assurance that we have the Holy Spirit living within us to help us to understand God's Word, to interpret it rightly, and to apply it to our lives. And by doing so, we are a witness and testimony of light in this dark world. Father, help us, we pray. We thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us warnings. You are a good and wise Father who doesn't just tell us what we want to hear, but you tell us what we need to hear. And we need to hear stuff like this. That's why it's in your word. And so, Father, help us to be discerning. Help us to not be overly critical and judgmental, for that is an error we want to avoid because it's an error that is not characterized by love. But we also want to have a love that is discerning. And so we ask that you'd help us to grow in that way, this biblical love that discerns according to your word. God, thank you for giving us your word. What a priceless gift it is to us that we might know the mind of Christ. Oh, help us to be faithful to abide in your word. And as we do so, we become more and more assured that we are abiding in Christ. Work in our hearts, we pray, that Christ will be lifted up for all to see. In his name we pray. Amen.